Good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. Great to be here with you guys, um, as always, just to praise the Lord and to worship Him and to study His Word and allow Him just to speak to us. It is a blessing uh, to do so. Last week, we finished off our study of Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, and so today we will continue our march through the New Testament by starting our study through Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians is a very small epistle, okay? It only has three chapters to it. It's uh, a total of 47 verses in all. Uh, but within this small book, uh, there are truths and promises that were of great importance to the church in Thessalonica, and as we'll see, are of great importance to us as well. Now, normally, whenever we come to a new book in our study through the New Testament, we take some time to lay out all the background information regarding the book. We get in all the details. Um, we're going to do that a little bit where we're going to kind of do more of a brief overview uh, of the background because um, really a lot of the background we just covered when we went through First Thessalonians just uh, uh, this last uh, couple months. And so we just did an overview uh, introduction to First Thessalonians, and, and much of the information is the same here in Second Thessalonians, okay? So we would normally ask the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the book. And so the who of the book, it's the same, okay? The author who wrote the letter is the Apostle Paul. The opening verse of the book clearly identifies him, and the second to last verse of the book also identifies Paul as the author. The audience whom Paul wrote to is the same as well. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. Now, from our study of 1 Thessalonians, we discovered that the church in Thessalonica was a young church, okay? A church that was started after Paul visited with them for just a few weeks. Uh, Paul had only had a few weeks with them because after three weeks of preaching in the local Jewish synagogues, a group of Jews who were not persuaded by Paul's preaching, they stirred up the city and they caused an uproar within the city. The church decided it was best for Paul to flee under the cover of night, and they sent him on his way to the next city along his missionary travels. But the persecution and the opposition against the church did not stop simply because Paul left. It continued on and on as both Jews and Gentiles came against them and their newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And so the church was very young, and, and they experienced a great amount of persecution, and yet Despite these things, okay, the church in Thessalonica was a model church to all the other churches throughout the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. In Paul's first letter, he mentioned time and time again the faith, love, and hope that prevailed within the church despite all the things that were going against them. The when and the where are believed to be the same as well uh, from 1 Thessalonians. Okay, it's believed that Paul wrote this letter within a few months, maybe up to a year from when he sent his first letter. It's also believed that he wrote the letter from the same place where he wrote his first letter, from the city of Corinth. Okay, most of this is based upon the fact that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are mentioned at the very beginning of both letters. And the only time in the scriptures that indicate that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were all together in one place after their time in Thessalonica was when they were together in Corinth for about 18 months during Paul's second missionary journey. And so because of that, uh, many believe that this letter must have been written while they were in Corinth together. Okay. Now, 
Paul's travels, if, we, if you recall maybe, uh, during his second missionary journey after visiting Thessalonica, had him going to the city of Berea. Now, the same people who caused trouble for Paul in Thessalonica heard about him doing ministry down in Berea, and they came and caused the same sort of problems against him there. And so Paul was sent out alone via the sea to the city of Athens. And then Silas and Timothy eventually rejoined with Paul in Athens, and that's when Paul decided to send Timothy back to Thessalonica uh, to check in on them, to make sure that they were doing okay and that they were continuing in their new faith. And from Athens, Paul made his way to Corinth, and then eventually he was reunited with Paul, both Silas and Timothy. And when Timothy arrived, he shared the good news of how the church was doing great, despite all of those things that were stacked up against them. Timothy also shared with Paul about how some of the believers were concerned about some of their loved ones that had passed and what would become of them in light of the coming of the Lord. Would they miss out on the glorious future and blessings associated with the return of Christ? Did they miss out simply because they died before Christ's return? And it was after hearing the update from Timothy and hearing about some of the questions the church had about the coming of the Lord and how it impacted those who had passed that Paul decided to sit down and write his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. And it's believed that Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica to deliver Paul's letter and then he subsequently returned to Paul again, who was still in Corinth. And then after some time, word about some other difficulties the church was experiencing came to the ear of Paul while still in Corinth. And so he sat down and wrote this second letter to the church in Thessalonica to address those issues. And this brings us to the what and the why and the how of the book of Second Thessalonians. We're going to answer them kind of all together. Okay, Why did Paul write this letter? Okay, what was his main purpose in doing so, and how is the book structured or outlined? Okay, Paul wrote this letter to encourage the church in Thessalonica. He wrote this letter to explain a few things more thoroughly, and he wrote this letter to exhort the church in some areas that needed to be addressed. It is a letter that deals with encouragement, explanation, and exhortation. Okay, the church needed encouragement because they were continued to face great opposition and persecution. And so Paul wanted to encourage them, and he does so in the opening chapter, chapter 1. The church needed further explanation on matters pertaining to the day of the Lord that he mentioned in his first letter. It would seem, based upon the content of this letter, that there were some who had come under the impression that because of all the persecution that they were facing, that they were in fact living in and experiencing the day of the Lord, that they would that the day of the Lord had come, and they were experiencing the wrath of God that's associated with the day of the Lord. There were some who were teaching this within the church and spreading these false teachings regarding the day of the Lord. There's even a hint within this letter that suggests there could have been a false letter penned and submitted to the church as if from Paul, stating that they were living and experiencing the day of the Lord. So Paul wrote this letter to assure those in Thessalonica that the day of the Lord had not come and that what they were experiencing was not the wrath of God and the great tribulation that's associated with the day of the Lord. Excuse me. He, um, let me find what I was saying. He further explains certain things that must come to pass prior to the day of the Lord as evidence and proof that they were not living in the season of God's wrath. And, and this is all found in chapter 2. Okay? The church needed exhortation 
regarding matters pertaining to those who were being disorderly in the church. And one of the main issues was that there was a group of believers in the church of Thessalonica that had quit working and let go of all of their responsibilities, believing that the day of the Lord was at hand, that Christ's return was going to happen at any moment. And so they simply stopped working and they were living off the benevolence and the support of others within the church. And Paul exhorted those people to get back to work, okay, to stop taking advantage of the kindness and the generosity of the church while the return of Christ for his church could come at any time. They still had a responsibility to do their part to support themselves and to work if they were physically capable. The fact that Christ could return at any time was no excuse to quit work and simply wait around for him to come. They needed to continue faithfully working and being busy about all that God had called them to while they actively waited for the Lord. And these are things that are covered in the third and final chapter, okay? And so there you have it. We've got the who, the what, the when, the where, the how of the book of 2 Thessalonians. And with that, turn to our text for us this morning. We're going to look to cover the entirety of chapter 1. And so if you haven't done so already, go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Okay, it's Obviously, after 1 Thessalonians, if you get to Timothy's and Titus, you've gone too far. Turn back. Okay, and then once you're there, I'd like to invite you all to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Holy Word. Our study this morning is going to be entitled, Paul's Encouragement. Okay, Paul's Encouragement. Our text is going to be all of chapter 1, from verse 1 all the way down to verse 12. I'm going to read our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along in your own Bible as I read from mine. Paul writes the following at the opening of his second letter to the church in Thessalonica. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the opportunity that we have to start a new study and a new book of Second Thessalonians. Lord, we thank you that this letter was a letter that you inspired Paul to write. 
that he might encourage and educate and, and exhort the church in Thessalonica. But Lord, we also trust that your word is active and living even today. And that the message contained in this uh, epistle is a message that you would have for us, the church here in 2023 in Iwakuni, Japan. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear all that your spirit desires to say to us, your church. Lead us and guide us through your word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Here in our first two verses, we have the very familiar greeting that Paul liked to use in many of his letters to the churches. He started off introducing himself and his travel companions who helped form the church in Thessalonica, uh, Silvanus, who's also known as Silas, and Timothy. Uh, Silas, uh, you guys may recall, he had joined Paul at the onset of his second missionary journey. Prior to him joining Paul, he was a prominent member of the church in Jerusalem, and he was actually sent by the church in Jerusalem to deliver the decision of the Jerusalem council to those in Antioch about the Gentiles becoming Christians and whether or not they had to first become Jews before they could become believers. Uh, Silas was one of the prominent members of the church that was sent to help deliver that decision that was made. Timothy joined Silas and Paul soon after the beginning of the second missionary journey. Uh, one of the first places that Paul visited on his second missionary journey was Timothy's hometown of Lystra. This was a city that Paul had visited on his first missionary journey, and it was during that time that Timothy came to faith in Christ. And then when Paul came back through this second missionary journey, he asked Timothy to join with him and Silas. After introducing himself and his companions, Paul addressed the church using nearly the exact same wording as he did in his first letter. The only difference between his address in 1 Thessalonians and the one here in 2 Thessalonians is the word our instead of the word the when referring to God the Father. You see, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in 2 Thessalonians, it's to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reminder from the very get-go of our relationship with the Lord how through faith in Jesus Christ we have become part of God's family. We have been adopted as children of God. He is God, our Father. Paul then went to his traditional refrain that he used in nearly all of his letters, stating, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul used this exact greeting word for word in 10 of the 13 letters that are attributed to him. The three books that don't have this same exact greeting are First and Second Timothy and Titus. In those particular letters, Paul adds the virtue of mercy along with grace and peace. He writes, grace and mercy and peace to you uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, just adds that one extra word in those three epistles. Other than that, they're exactly the same. Paul always started off by speaking about the grace of God and the peace of God that we have from our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote these two words side by side often, but always, always, always in this order. Nowhere in the Bible will you see mentioned peace before grace. And I believe Paul does so purposefully because you cannot really know the peace of God until you have experienced the grace of God. It's all about God's grace. 
Without it, we would have nothing. Okay, we would still be hopelessly lost in our sins and without any hope of redemption or a right standing with the Lord. And it's only because of God's grace that we can enter into a loving and intimate relationship with the Lord and have peace with God and we can know the peace of God. Now, in the rest of Paul's opening chapter, he takes some time to encourage the church and he does so in three different ways. If you're a note taker or an outliner, I've taken the liberty of breaking up our portion into three sections, each dealing with a different way in which Paul encouraged the church in Thessalonica. In verses 3 and 4, Paul encouraged, Paul's encouragement excuse me, involved praise. Okay? It involved praise. In verses 5 through 10, his encouragement involved promises. And in verses 11 and 12, his encouragement involved prayer. And so praise, promises, and prayer. Let's dive into the first bit of encouragement Paul shared in verses 3 and 4 involving praise. He said, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. We'll stop right there. Paul starts off his encouragement by reminding the church in Thessalonica how they always thank God for them. In his letter to the church in Thessalonica, he exhorted them to give thanks in everything, for it was God's will for them to do so. You guys remember 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And here Paul is practicing what he was preaching. He writes how he and his companions are bound to thank God. The wording here suggests that it was something they felt was owed to the church, something that they were indebted to do. Whenever they thought of the church in Thessalonica, their thoughts went instantly to praise and thanksgiving for all that God had done and was continuing to do in and through them. Their praise was fitting, or your translation may read that it was right, or that it was rightly so. And here in these verses, we see four things that stand out as to why Paul gave thanks to God always for them and why this praise was fitting or why it was rightly so. Number one, we see that Paul thanked God for the church's growing faith. Okay, their growing faith. The phrase grows exceedingly is one word in the Greek, and it speaks of something that increases beyond measure, something that grows more and more and more, something that flourishes. It is a compound word in the Greek. The root word, uh, oxano, means to grow or to increase or to spread. It's actually used 22 times in the New Testament in connection with the growth of plants, babies, and in connection with spiritual growth. But the word here okay, is not oxano, it's hooperoxano. Okay? The prefix hooper stands as an intensifier. Okay? This isn't just growth, this isn't just increase, this was exceeding growth. Okay, this was a growth beyond measure. This is the one and only time this word is ever used in the New Testament, and it was used to describe the faith of the believers in Thessalonica. Our faith, you guys, in the Lord, it is not meant to be a static thing. We often might refer to having faith, like I have faith, uh, and we talk of it as something that we have or we don't have. But I think we should consider it in a different way. 
It is something that I believe is either increasing or decreasing. As believers in the Lord, our faith should continue to grow day by day. We should never stop growing. We, we should desire to continue to grow our faith day by day, drawing closer and closer to the Lord with each passing day. Because none of us have arrived. None of us are a completed work. Because okay? if that were so, God would have called us home to be with Him. God still desires to do a work in you and through you. He still desires to see you grow more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to you, church family, is to let God do that work. Okay? Allow Him to continue to mold and shape and grow our faith in Him. That our faith wouldn't be something that we just have, but it would be something that is growing more and more each day. Number two, we see that Paul praised the Lord not only for their growing faith, but also for their abounding love. Their abounding love. This was actually an answer to Paul's prayer from his first letter. Paul prayed uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. He prayed, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. And here we see that Paul's prayer had been answered. Okay? They were abounding in love toward one another. The love of God, you guys, it ought to be the defining characteristic of all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ and follow Him. Jesus said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that is exactly what was happening there in the church. And so Paul praised God for that. Number three, Paul praised the church for their enduring patience. Okay, the persecutions and tribulations they had encountered when the church was first started, they continued on and on. The wording here suggests that the church was under constant pressure. Okay, they were being harassed. They were being pressed and crushed from these outside influences. And yet, despite this constant attack, they did not give up. Okay? They persevered. These tribulations were working in them, producing in them perseverance, as described in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. You guys, patience and perseverance only come through trials and tribulations, okay? There's no other way to, to, to grow it, okay? Sometimes I've had people ask, hey, can you pray, pray for me that I'd be patient? I'm like, do you really want me to pray for you to have patience? Because, you know, there's only one way that's going to come, okay? It's through trials and tribulations and suffering, okay? That's why James writes, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Excuse me. You know, I think this church is uh, to be commended because instead of running and hiding from the persecution or giving up on their faith in Christ, the Thessalonians, they stood strong in their faith. And their patience grew as a result of that. You know, I think oftentimes when we face difficulties, well, I, I did that first service too. I won't say when we face difficulties. When I face difficulties, I don't want to put words in your guys' mouth. Maybe this is just me, okay? But I know that when I face difficulties trials or tribulations, I often will go to the Lord and pray for Him to get me out of those situations, 
right, to remove me from those challenges. But in doing so, I'm asking God not to work in me, not to grow me, not to mature me, and not to have his work perfected in me. And you guys, you run the risk of doing the same when you ask God the same thing. When you're going through those trials and those tribulations, you say, God, just get me out of it. I just don't want to be here anymore. But God has a plan and a purpose through that trial. He has a plan and a purpose through that tribulation to mature us, to perfect us, to grow us, and to strengthen us. And yet we say, no, 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 God, we don't want that. We need to be careful of what we ask for when we go to Him in prayer, okay? That work of maturing and perfecting, it comes through the trials and tribulations and difficulties. God uses them for our own good and for our own development and growth. Paul praised God for their enduring patience that came as a result of the many trials, tribulations, and persecutions that they faced. And I, I, I want to ask ourselves, can we do the same? Can we praise God for the difficulties? Can we praise God for the trials and the tribulations, trusting and knowing that in faith God is using them to grow us, to mature us, to mold and shape us more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ? I pray that we can. I pray that we will patiently endure and that we will allow God to have His way in us. The fourth and final thing I wanted to note is a little more subtle, but it's there. Paul praised God for the church's powerful testimony. Okay, their powerful testimony. Paul and his companions boasted of the church in Thessalonica amongst all the other churches of God. You see, our suffering and trials and tribulations not only are used to help ourselves grow, but they can also be used to help others grow as well. Suffering through trials and tribulations and difficult seasons enables us to comfort others who are going through similar times. Paul states the following in 2 Corinthians. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. And so the powerful testimony of the church was being spread throughout all the other churches as they heard of how they continued in faith despite the persecution, despite the difficulties. They persevered, they grew in their faith, they abounded in their love, and their testimony was used to strengthen and encourage others. You guys, God does not waste our trials and our sufferings. He uses them for our glory, and He uses them to encourage and comfort others. He takes us through the fire to purify us, to strengthen us, to mold and shape us, and He wants to use our testimony to strengthen and mold and shape others as well. Let me ask you this question this morning. What is your testimony What has God brought you through that He may use to encourage and strengthen and edify others in the body of Christ? We all have a testimony, okay? If you've been saved by the grace of God, you have a testimony. God has done a work in your heart and in your life, okay? Let's share it with those around us that we may encourage them, 
and perhaps comfort them concerning the work God's doing in and through them, a work that a similar work that he's done perhaps in us. Well, after spending some time praising God for the Thessalonians, Paul's encouragement took on a different form. Read with me verses 5 through 10 as we look at Paul's encouragement and how it involved promises. Verse 5, it continues. Actually, from verse 3 all the way to verse 12 in the Greek is one long continuous sentence. And so it kind of is a little choppy as we read it in English a little bit. But verse 5 continues uh, in reference to the persecutions and tribulations that you endure. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. We'll stop right there. In this section, Paul addressed the persecutions and tribulations that the Thessalonians were facing, and he spoke of different promises they could count upon. And I'd like to note four promises that are alluded to in this section. They were promises that the Thessalonians could be encouraged by as they face these difficult seasons. Number one, we see that there is a promise of reward for the Thessalonians, okay, reward. Verse 5 speaks of how the persecutions and tribulations that the Thessalonians endured were evidence of the righteous judgment of God and how they were used to prove the Thessalonians' worthiness of the kingdom of God. God was just in allowing these tribulations and persecutions because they were used to produce perseverance, character, and hope in the Thessalonians. They became evidence of their worthiness of the kingdom of God. Now, we need to understand something very important here. Suffering and enduring trials and tribulations are not ways we become worthy of God's kingdom. Okay? Suffering for the Lord does not earn us the right to be part of God's kingdom, nor does that assure us our place in heaven. You see, our worth is not in ourselves, but it is in Jesus Christ. We are worthy because we've placed our hope and faith in Christ. He is worthy, okay? And because He is worthy, and because we have placed our faith in Him, we have been counted worthy of the kingdom of God. The, the idea of being counted worthy is not that we are actually seen as worthy, but rather we are reckoned as worthy worthy. Okay, it is a judicial decree. God has declared us worthy of the kingdom based upon our faith in Jesus Christ. But he uses trials and tribulations to prove or to show evidence of our worth. You see, our place in God's kingdom is assured because of Christ and what he did for us, the pain and the suffering he endured on our behalf. What this is saying is not that our suffering makes us worthy, but rather that our suffering is proof or, or evidence of the fact that we are worthy of the kingdom of God. Those who have placed their faith in Christ will persevere. They will endure persecutions and they will come out stronger and more refined. 
The trials and tribulations and persecutions merely expose what is there already. And so Paul, he seeks to encourage the Thessalonians by reminding them of the promise of their worthiness in God's kingdom, how they will be rewarded with the kingdom of God. Number two, we see here a promise of recompense on behalf of the Lord. In verse 6, Paul describes how it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who troubled the Thessalonians. You guys, God is just. We like to remember scriptures that talk about how God is love, and God is gracious, and God is kind, and forgiving, and compassionate, and those are wonderful truths about the Lord. But we also have to remember that God is just, that God is holy, and we have to balance those things out with his other characteristics. God is just. Deuteronomy 32 states, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. God will act with complete justice. Okay? He will see to it that those who persecuted His children will answer for their deeds. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked writes Paul in Galatians. Whatever man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We live in a reaping and sowing world. God will see to it that justice is served. It may not be immediate. It may not even be on this side of eternity. But inevitably, justice will be administered. This is a promise that ought to comfort and encourage us. We can trust God to be just in all of His doings. He will make things right. Number three, we have a promise of rest that is to come. The Thessalonians were experiencing all sorts of difficulties, but Paul assured them that one day they would enter into rest. God would repay with tribulation those who persecuted the Thessalonians and at the same time give to the Thessalonians rest. The troublers which once plagued the Thessalonians will be no more. They will be dealt with justly by the Lord. And when God deals with them, the Thessalonians will be able to enter into rest. And that rest that's alluded to here looks forward into the future. And it's connected to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed and He will be glorified in us, as mentioned in verse 10, which leads to our fourth promise. Fourth and finally, Paul alludes to the promise of Christ's return. Jesus is going to come back, and that ought to encourage us all. When He does, we will enter into that rest. There will be no more trials. There will be no more tribulations. There will be no more heartaches. There will be no more distresses. We will enter into our rest in the Lord. Christ will be glorified in us and admired by all who believe. But it will not be so for those who didn't put their faith in Christ. When Christ returns, He will do so with vengeance. He will come to administer the justice of God. You see, God is just, He's holy, and He must deal with sin. He cannot let sin go undealt with. He would not be just. He would not be holy if He did so. And Paul singles out two types of people that Jesus will bring His vengeance upon. He will bring it upon those who do not know God, 
The word know here speaks of experiential knowledge. It speaks of knowing someone or something intimately, not just knowing about something or someone, okay? It's not just that you can answer, you know, all your Bible trivia questions, again, A plus, okay? It's not knowing about God. It's about knowing Him personally, intimately. It's about those that have a, a relationship with the Lord. He will bring His vengeance upon those who do not know God, but He will also bring His vengeance upon those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the beauty of it, you guys. God is just. He will judge sin. The wages of sin is death. But, you guys, God has given a way for us all to escape that vengeance. God has given us a way for us to escape the righteous judgment that is to come, and it is through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And any and all who are put their hope and faith in the gospel of Christ will be spared the judgment of God when Christ returns to this world. Now, in verse 9, Paul describes the punishment that will befall all who do not know God and all who have not obeyed His gospel. They will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You know, there are um, churches uh, today and there are people who have written books that will try to claim that there is no hell and hell is not real, that, you know, everybody, if you believe you go to heaven, but if you die and you don't believe, you just, you just die and you just cease to exist. There is no hell. There is no judgment. There is no uh, eternal destruction. But that's simply not what the Bible teaches. Okay? They will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Despite what some want to believe, the punishment of the wicked will be neither temporary nor will it be annihilation, but it will continue throughout eternity and those being punished will be conscious of that judgment. It is eternal death as opposed to eternal life. Many people have thoughts and, and mental pictures of hell as a place of darkness and burning flames, which is, is a scary sight to consider. But I believe the most scary thing about hell is not the endless destruction nor the flames. I agree with what David Guzik wrote in his commentary. I want to read it to you. This is what he said. He said, It isn't the fire that makes hell what it is. In the fiery furnace, the three Jewish young men were completely comfortable as long as the Lord was with them in the fire. What truly characterizes hell is that there, people are from the presence of the Lord, in the sense of being apart from anything good or blessed in God's presence. From the presence of the Lord sums up the Bible's understanding of hell. Nothing must be said more about its horrors other than hell will be completely devoid of God and every aspect of His character except one, His unrelenting, holy justice. You guys, that, to me, is the scariest thing about hell. God is love. Hell is loveless. God is light. Hell is complete darkness. 
God is gracious and kind and merciful. You guys, there will be no grace, no kindness, and no mercy in hell. It will be completely void of God's presence. And to me, that is the scariest thing to consider about hell. It is a place none of us should ever consider or desire to want to be, and we should try and tell as many people as possible to avoid. It is a real place, and it is a place that people are headed towards, a place completely void of the Lord, other than His holy justice. Paul wraps up his encouragement here through a prayer that he offers on behalf of the Thessalonians in verses 11 and 12. Read it with me. He says, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness in the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul wrote, you guys, to encourage the Thessalonians. He started his encouragement by praising God on their behalf for all the wonderful things God was doing in them and through them. And then he encouraged them by reminding them of certain promises of God's future work. And then here in these final verses, Paul's encouragement involved him praying for them. And Paul prayed to God for four things pertaining to the Thessalonians. Note them with me. Number one, Paul prayed God would count them worthy of his calling. This carries the same notion as it did previously in verse 5, that they would be reckoned worthy, judged worthy, deemed worthy based upon God, God's calling upon their lives. You see, God's calling for us all is the same. There are certain aspects of our calling that are unique, but there are certain aspects of our calling that are the same for all of us. And one of those aspects of God's calling for us that is all the same is that God has called us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We are all called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God has called us to be like Christ, to follow in his example that was left for us. This calling is a gradual, lifelong process that will be completed when we see Christ face to face. 1 John 3 states, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. You see, one day, you guys, we will see the Lord face to face, and God's work in us will be complete. But until that day, we push forward, allowing God to mold and shape us more and more into the image of His Son. And so he prayed that they might be worthy of that calling, a calling to Christ's likeness. Number two, Paul prayed that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness in the work of faith with power. Basically, Paul was praying that God would grant to the Thessalonians the power to accomplish all the good things that their faith prompted them to do. That as they walked by faith, and as they were sensitive to his leading and guiding, that God would empower them to do all that was laid upon their hearts according to their faith. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 tells us that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Paul was praying for God's empowerment upon the Thessalonians that they would be able to do 
all that God prompted them to do. Number three, Paul prayed that Christ would be glorified in them and that they would be glorified in Christ. This prayer was that God's glory might be manifest in and through the Thessalonians, both immediately in their daily lives, but also at the revelation of Christ as spoken of in verse 10. And you guys, we must understand that the ultimate goal of all believers ought to be to glorify Christ in all that we do. Through our actions, our words, our thoughts, our motives, okay, whatever it is that we do, we ought to do to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. When we live to glorify Christ, Christ is glorified in us. And then number four, last of all, but certainly not least of all, Paul prayed for the means by which all these things can be accomplished. Paul prayed that all these things would happen according to the grace of God. How can we be counted worthy of his calling? By the grace of God. How can we be empowered to do all the things that God prompts us to do in our faith? By God's grace alone. How can we glorify Christ and have Christ glorified in us? It is only by the amazing grace of our God. By God's grace alone are we able to live our lives for Him. May we all be encouraged this morning that whatever we are going through, that whatever we are facing, okay, whatever mountain may be before us, that God's grace is sufficient for all of our needs. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to start a new book. We thank you for the encouragement that Paul had for the church in Thessalonica. We want to receive that same encouragement to our own lives, Lord. We want to reciprocate it as well. Lord, we want to encourage one another. Lord, we want to praise you for the work that you do in our brothers' and sisters' lives, Lord. We want to uh, remember and declare and live off of the promises that you have for us. And Lord, we want to pray for one another, to intercede on behalf of one another. Lord, and in that manner, I do pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that they would be counted worthy of the calling that you have upon their life. Lord, I pray that you would empower them to do all that you've called them to do, all those things that you've stirred their heart upon. Lord, I pray that your spirit would empower them to do so. Lord, I pray that your grace would be upon us as we seek to glorify you in our lives, in the things we do and the things we say, even in the thoughts that we think, that we would bring honor and glory to you. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of church that stands out for these types of things, for our perseverance, for our abounding love, for our growing faith, for our testimony, Lord. But it's all a work of your grace on us. And so, Lord, that's, that's our greatest prayer and our greatest need. Lord, shower us with your grace day by day. May we be reminded of the grace you've poured out upon us. And may we praise you each and every day for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.